Hi, this is Chris Finch. I'm lead pastor of City Walk Church. I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you don't already know, the best way to stay connected with City Walk Church is with our app. Just go to your device's app store and search City Walk Church to find it. Whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus or you're just investigating faith, our hope is that this message will help you take your next step in that journey. If you're in the area, we would love to have you come join us in person. For more information or to plan your visit, check us out at citywalkchurch.com or on social media at WeAreCityWalkCA. Good morning, City Walk Church. How are we doing this morning? All right. So you guys, you guys ready for Christmas? We're 10 days away. How many of you still need to go on Amazon, maybe even during this service, and buy a few more presents if the pastor's boring? Okay. Yeah, we still have a few more. It's hard to believe we're 10 days away, uh, which is, which is pretty, pretty cool. But also, man, things have been moving fast. Uh, I'm excited, obviously, for Christmas. But if we're 10 days away from Christmas, that means we're nine days away from Christmas Eve. And we're excited about Christmas Eve here at City Walk. And, and if you didn't, absolutely, if you didn't know uh, already, we're going to have two services on Christmas Eve. Uh, we're going to have one at 3.30 and one at 5.30. And our desire for that service is it would be a, a special place for those of us that call City Walk home to have a meaningful time with our family, but also that it would be a special place where we can invite our neighbors, we can invite the people we work with, we can invite those family members that maybe usually wouldn't come to church with us, but man, they might be willing to come on a Christmas Eve. And we want to really get the word out and just see God do some really cool stuff on that Christmas Eve and during one of those services. And so on your way out, if you haven't already, pick up a, uh, some invite cards, maybe a door hanger or two. And then also we have a, maybe eight or nine yard signs still left. Uh, and so grab one of those, help get the word out. Uh, we're going to have a really good time on Christmas Eve. But uh, we want to see Jesus move in people's lives. And so that's going to be a real special night. Uh, yesterday we were at the, the Christmas stroll. And uh, we were able to invite a lot of people. And the Christmas stroll, if you've never been to the Christmas stroll here in Yuba City, you need to probably try to go next year. Uh, it's one of those things that, man, people are, there's booths all up and down Plumas Street, and people are giving away stuff, and man, kids are happy, and it just seems like, specifically during this time of year, there's, there's just a lot more friendliness amongst people. And so during the, the summer stroll, if you've ever been to that, it's like, 100 degrees outside, and people are kind of nice to you, but during the Christmas stroll, everybody's nice to everybody, and it was fun last night to meet a lot of people, and it's fun to watch. We did some, some face painting for some kids, and it's fun to watch little kids during this time of year. Uh, it's fun to watch little kids when they, man, they see Santa Claus, or when they, they, they see, uh, man, yesterday a lot of kids getting their face painted, and then we would turn the mirror and say, hey, look at what your face looks like, and, and they would get excited, and there's just a, a lot of excitement, a lot of hope around this season, and over the past week, we, we entered a series that we really were focused on what brings us hope during this season. And, and when we think about hope from a human perspective, and, and we introduced this idea a little bit last, last week, when we talk about hope from a human perspective, we're talking about this kind of nervous anticipation. And so right now, and my, my daughter, she's six years old, 
She's every single day she's laying kind of next to the Christmas tree and she said this to me several times. I wish we could just open up the presents now. Why can't we just open them up now? And, and there's there's hope like man I, I can't wait to open that one. What's going to be in it? And and when you're uh, a kid it's this nervous anticipation and that's really what hope is from a human perspective. You're you're an adult and you have hope about things. And from a human perspective, when we have hope, it's not that we know something for sure, but man, we're hoping that the Christmas bonus is as big as last year's. And we're not sure if it's going to be, but there's a nervous anticipation, and we're hoping. Uh, We're hoping if we're a mother, man, this is the time of year that we're going to get all the family together and we have this nervous anticipation that it's going to be a really special time and there's not going to be a lot of drama and and that's what we're hoping. And that from a human perspective, that's what hope is. It's nervous anticipation that that we call hope. But from a a perspective from God, it's, it's different. Whether you're somebody that grew up in church and and read the scriptures or whether you're somebody that's maybe investigating faith, hope from God's perspective is different from hope from a human perspective. And here's what I mean. Hope from God's perspective is confident expectation. So as a human, we have nervous anticipation. We hope it's going to be some way. We hope something's going to turn out right. But from God's perspective, when he talks about hope in the scriptures... What he's talking about is something much different, and it is confident expectation. Basically, I know this is true, and because that is true, I am confidently expecting it because I am putting hope, confident expectation in it. And as we have kind of delved in even this past week into this this subject of the thrill of hope around Christmas, whether you're somebody that's following Jesus, or maybe you're investigating faith, this is a a really special time of year that brings tremendous hope no matter where you are in your walk of faith. And here's why it brings tremendous hope. Because there was really a baby that was born in Bethlehem. History tells us that. The Bible tells us that. There was really a baby born in Bethlehem, and that baby was and is the hope of the world. And last week, we, we, we heard from a guy by the name of Matthew. Matthew was a guy that he was a tax collector. He was one of those guys that you were not going to send a Christmas card to. Uh, he was not a guy you were inviting over to the Christmas party. He was a guy that you were going to maybe toilet paper his house or egg his house. I mean, he was that guy because he was a tax collector. And he was a guy that nobody liked because he stole from his people to give money to the enemy. But Jesus, he interacted with with Matthew, and Matthew became a follower of Jesus, became one of his 12 disciples. He, He became a close follower, and he wrote down a record of Jesus' life and birth. And last week, we looked at a little bit of his uh, kind of his record of Jesus' birth. If you look at, and it'll be up on the screen, Matthew chapter 1. This is what Matthew said. He said, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Matthew was a type of guy, and I said this last week, man, he was like a get-to-the-point kind of guy. He's like, hey, here's how it went down. 
marry Joseph. They were betrothed. That means they had a kind of a legal agreement that they were going to end up getting married. And all of a sudden, Joseph finds out that Mary's already pregnant. And, And he goes on and he says this. He says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then Matthew, he, he brings up a verse that the prophet Isaiah had said hundreds of years earlier. He says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Matthew, he's this guy that was a tax collector. He was far from God. He was an enemy of of God, an enemy of a lot of people. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And now he's writing down. He's saying, hey, let me write down a little bit about Jesus' life. And let me tell you about his birth, how how Mary got pregnant. And she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And, And Joseph, an angel comes to Joseph and says, hey, Joseph, don't divorce her. This is a legit thing. This is actually the the the." baby that has been uh, promised all the way back in Isaiah's time and so Joseph says okay man I'll all right I believe you and so Jesus was born And, and Christmas because of this story brings us hope because this baby that was born in a manger wasn't just Jesus the savior but he was Emmanuel God with us which man it's hard to even fathom Like Emmanuel, God, like God came down to be with us. And Matthew says, hey, this has been promised. And and why we have such hope at Christmas is because, yes, Jesus is Savior. But also, man, this guy was Emmanuel, God with us. And that brings tremendous hope. And, And I said this last week. I mean, if Jesus was just like a good man. That, that died a, a monumental death and did some cool stuff, then honestly, we're not celebrating his birthday. His birthday's not that big of a deal. His birth isn't that big of a deal. The reason it's such a big deal is because this baby that was born was actually God. And God came to earth, and he was born to Mary and Joseph. He lived a sinless life. And then at the age of 33, because he had not sinned himself, he was able to go to a cross and pay for the sins of the world. And that's why Christmas is such a big deal, because Emmanuel, God with us, came to earth to save us. And that's what's so special. And that's what should give us hope, whether we're someone who's far from God or whether you would consider yourself close to God in this season. But but here's what this morning I want you to think about. All that's great. But hope didn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem. It actually can be traced thousands of years earlier into the actual line of Christ in Jesus' family tree. Like if you were to take time to look through the family tree of Jesus, you would see hope generations and generations before Jesus was even born, you would see tremendous hope in the people that were in his line. And Matthew, this, this guy that's kind of a get-to-the-point kind of guy, he's writing... He actually takes the first like 17 verses of his writing and he basically gives us the family tree of Jesus. You're like, Matthew, why did you start your book like by saying so-and-so, somebody's 
father and so-and-so, somebody's father and so-and-so. He basically gives us the Ancestry.com report for Jesus in the first 17 verses of his book. And as you read it, and probably if you're like me over the years, you probably just skipped over that part. Like, I'm sure that's all important, but let's get to the good stuff. I don't care whose daddy was whose daddy. That's no big deal. But what's interesting, and here's what I want us to think about, because you know this, think about your family tree. Think about your, if you've ever taken time to investigate your family tree and to really find out, hey, who's my great-great-grandfather? Who's my great-great-great-grandmother? And, and you kind of find out who they are. Man, it, it, it's pretty interesting. And you probably have some people in your family tree, you're like, yeah, we're going to skip telling people about that person because they, they weren't really that good. But then there might be one or two in your family tree a few generations back, you're like, you will not believe who I'm related to. Like, our family's claim to fame is we're the fourth cousin of Johnny Cash. And so, man, we're, we're excited about that. That's who, we don't want to tell you about, like, the crazy people in our family, but we will tell you about our fourth cousin, Johnny Cash. You have those same people. And, and it's interesting, when you look back at the family tree of somebody, to just see the different, the makeup of their family. And, and if you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, that's how Matthew starts his book. He says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You're like, dude, could you start with like the walking on water thing or something like that? Like what's this genealogy in David and Abraham? And to us, this doesn't seem like, like why would you start it this way? But to the reader, if you were Jewish, man, this is extremely important to you because for you, to know somebody's genealogy would tell you what tribe of Israel you were part of. It would also tell you if you were going to get an inheritance. And so for these people, if you're claiming to be Jesus, if you're claiming to be the Messiah, you better be able to prove it by your genealogy. You better be able to prove it by your family tree because we know where the Messiah is coming from because it's been prophesied about for hundreds of years. And so Matthew, in the very first verse, he says, hey, let me tell you about the main character of this story. His name's Jesus. And let me tell you about the, a connection he has with a guy named David, who if you're Jewish is like your hero, and your other hero, Abraham. See, back in the Old Testament, there was a couple covenants that were really important to the Jewish people. There was the Davidic covenant, and it was when, when God came to David and told David, hey, David, one day there's going to be a king that comes from your line that's going to be the king of the world. And there was a promise made to David. And then there was also a promise made to Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And he was told, hey, buddy, out of your offspring, one of your kids is actually going to bless the entire world. And so Matthew, in the very first verse, remember what I said? He's like a get-to-the-point kind of guy. He's like, hey, main character, Jesus, and let me tell you, he's connected to David and Abraham, your two heroes. And, and he wanted to kind of get that out because this was so important to these people. But Matthew knew this. He knew in order to show these people that Jesus was really the Messiah, he was going to have to show them all the way back to Abraham how Jesus was connected. And so that's what he does. He takes the first few verses of his writing and he says, hey, let me show you the family tree of Jesus from Joseph, his legal dad, all the way back to Abraham. 
And here's what's interesting. He, he, in, in order to do that, he skips over several generations. So, so here's what he does. He's, he says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk you through his, his family tree. And I'm going to just pick representatives in the family tree that just represent certain times. I'm not going to tell you every single person. I'm just going to give you a summary of it. And here's what's real interesting. The people he picked to talk about, these are not the people you would talk about in your family tree. You'd be like, man, if I was going to do a little summary of my family tree, there's definitely a few people that I'd leave out. And then there'd be a few people that I'd put in. But Matthew, for whatever reason, and we're going to kind of look at this real quickly, is, man, there's, there's definitely some really good people that he didn't mention, and then a lot of people that you and I would pretend weren't in our family that he actually made a big deal of in Jesus' genealogy. And you think, Matthew, like, why are you starting the Christmas story by telling us about some of these crazy, dysfunctional people that were in the line of Jesus? Like, David... Or, or, or uh, Matthew, why in the world would you tell us about a lady named Tamar? Why Tamar? He, he says in, in Matthew 1-2, like, you'll see her name. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Like, hey, Matthew, you didn't have to tell us about Tamar because Tamar was a just whacked woman. Let me tell you about Tamar. See, see, Judah was Tamar's father-in-law, and it's about to get really Jerry Springer in here when I tell you this, was the father-in-law of Tamar. And so the father-in-law, Judah, said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a, a wife for my first son, Ur. And so Ur, E-R, was his first son, and he says, hey, here's a nice girl named Tamar. Hey, I want you to get married to my son, Ur. So they get married. They don't have any kids or dies. And so in this society, when you don't have an heir and one brother dies, the next youngest brother takes the place. So Onan, hey buddy, Onan, come on over here. Ur's dead. You're the next up. You're going to marry Tamar and you're going to actually have a kid that's going to kind of keep your brother Ur's legacy alive. And so you, you and her get married and let's have a kid and, and we'll, we'll move on. Well, Onan wasn't a big fan of this. He's like, well, I'm going to have a kid, and it's actually going to be my brother's kid, and it's not going to be mine. And so Onan, he made sure she didn't get pregnant. I'm not going to go into the details about that. The Bible actually does. Uh, but he, he, he made sure she didn't get pregnant. Onan died. And so there's one more son. And so Judah's sitting there. I mean, and, and hey, the, the rightful thing is, hey, next guy up, next man up. Who's next? So Judah had one more son, but he's like, hey, my two boys have died. I don't know about this Tamar woman because she's killing off my boys. And so I, I know that my next son up should, you know, marry her right away. But I'm going to delay this thing a little bit because I, I like my kids. And so he does. So Tamar gets a little ticked. She says, all right, I'll show him. So she dresses up like a prostitute. And she... Meets up with her father-in-law, Judah, who doesn't know this is his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And she gets pregnant with two children from her father-in-law. And then basically she comes back and tells her father-in-law, hey, joke's on you, buddy. Yeah, hey, welcome to Grandma Tamar and Jesus' family tree. 
You think, hey, Matthew, why, why are you going to tell us about that? We're, t- we're trying to think about like baby in a manger, wise men, shepherds, angels singing, and you're telling us about this lady, Tamar. Why can't we just get to the baby in the manger stuff? Why are you telling us about this kind of crazy dysfunction in Jesus' genealogy? But he doesn't leave it alone. He tells us about Rahab. Like, Dave, or Matthew, why are you going to tell us about Rahab? Rahab's another, another one in the family tree. It says in Matthew 1.5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. You know when we meet Rahab in the Bible, you know who Rahab is? We meet Rahab in the Bible when Joshua is about to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Joshua sends two spies into the promised land to look over the land. They meet up with a lady named Rahab, who the Bible just says this, Rahab the harlot, the prostitute. And Rahab is the one that kind of hid the spies. And you say, you know what, Matthew, I get it, man, and you're, you're trying to be accurate, but you left other people out. Why would you tell us in the middle of the Christmas story, as you're about to introduce baby in a manger, why would you tell us about Rahab the prostitute? I mean, there's just no reason for that. But then he, 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 and you just keep reading through and you just continue to ask yourself, like, why mention that person? And then he does something else, Matthew. As you read through, he mentions a guy by the name of Uriah. Like, why are you going to mention Uriah? Uriah wasn't even in the family tree of Jesus. He was just married to a lady by the name of Bathsheba who ended up being in the family tree. But if you're going to leave anybody out, this would have been the guy to leave out. Because when I tell you the story about Uriah, basically I'm telling you about the failure of one of the heroes of Israel, King David. So why would you put Uriah in? And it it says this in Matthew 1.6, you can see they just mentioned his name. It says, and Jesse the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. See, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is, man, life is good. Like, he is kicking everybody's tail. He's taking land. Like, Israel is dominating the world. It's good in his mind. Like, everything's great. And he's in a season now when, when most of the time this was the season that was just the normal time of year when, when kings would go out and basically conquer other lands and be at war. And so David, most kings, are even when things are going good, you're supposed to be out kind of doing your, your war thing at certain times of the year. And so this is one of those times of the year. And 2 Samuel 11 tells us that, hey, David, when he should have been out at war, he stays home because life's good. Why should I go get, you know, messed up? Like, life's good. And so David, he, it's one evening, he's, he's t- kind of taking it easy at the, at the castle, and he decides to go up on the roof. So he goes up on the roof, and he, it's just, that it was kind of an area where you kind of hung out on their roof, and so he's kind of looking over his kingdom, and he sees this lady named Bathsheba. And he's the king, and so he, he likes what he sees, and he says, he sends some people, says, hey, go get Bathsheba and bring her here. So they do what the king says, and so he go get Bathsheba, he sleeps with Bathsheba, she, you know, he sends her off, a couple, you know, a little while later, finds out, whoops, Bathsheba's pregnant. Ah, man, that's going to complicate things. 
And so David has to come up with a plan because, man, he, can't, he can't, be, can't be doing this. And so he decides, oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, who's one of my faithful warriors that's actually out fighting and serving the country. I'm going to bring him back to town. I'm going to get him drunk, send him home to the house. He'll sleep with his wife and everything will be great. It'll never be blamed on me. Well, Uriah was actually a man of integrity. And so when he, even when he had gotten drunk and David said, hey, go home, man, just go home. Uriah thought, you know what? My, my guys are still out in the battle. I'm not going home when my guys are still out fighting. So he wouldn't go home. So David's like, man, that, that kind of messes my plan up. And so David says, you know what? Plan B. And this is where it got kind of crazy. I mean, you think, well, so far it's pretty crazy. Well, this goes up a level. And so here's what happens. 2 Samuel eleven fourteen, 14, David's kind of moving towards plan B, and this, this goes to another level of evil. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. Joab was the commander of the army and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So he writes a letter that he gives to Uriah to take back to Joab. All right, no problem. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So basically what David does is he writes a death sentence for Uriah. He gives that death sentence to Uriah and has Uriah walk his own death sentence and give it to the commander. You think, King David. Man, you definitely aren't getting a Christmas gift this year. That's a little bit, that's not nice, man. But you, you think... Why would, you do, why would you put that in here, Matthew? Why would you tell us about Uriah, which basically puts to the forefront the greatest failure of one of our nation's heroes, David? Why would you do that? Why, he's not even in the line of Jesus. Why even mention him? We, we tried to kind of put that story away and pretend that never happened. See, if Jesus is God's son and he came to impact the world, how would pointing out all the evil and dysfunction of Jesus' family tree help? Especially in this society where the religious crowd tried to keep things really clean on the outside. And in fact, in any society when you're running for office or when you're trying to be the leader, you try to put away the stories in the background that are kind of in the closet. You kind of keep them in the closet because this kind of story can ruin you. So David, why when you skip over other people do you strategically put in people like Tamar and Rahab and Uriah to tell the story of this baby that would be born, that would be God with us, the hope of the world. And I think if Matthew were here, and you were to look at Matthew and say, hey, why? I think this is what Matthew would say to us. Have you heard my story? Have you heard how I met Jesus? Because if you've heard my story, you'll understand why I put it in there. See, Matthew tells his own story in Matthew chapter 9. He, he was, like I said, a tax collector. And so he was, probably had seen Jesus. He had heard Jesus. He had probably maybe even heard some of Jesus' teaching. He had probably watched Jesus interact with people. 
But in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, it says this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Basically, Matthew is sitting at the desk where he cheats people out of money. Jesus comes up to him and says, hey, why don't you come hang out with me? Why don't you follow me? And Matthew, he gets up and he follows. And then what Jesus does right after that is he kind of even takes it to another level. He actually says, hey, well, since we're together, let's go have some dinner. And so he, he heads out and he has dinner with, with Matthew and with other people that were in Matthew's crowd, the tax collectors, the, the people that were, you weren't really supposed to hang out with these people because they ruined your reputation. Well, Jesus went and he had dinner with them. And the religious crowd looked at Jesus and thought, man, why are you hanging out with those people? That's the crowd you're not supposed to hang out with. And watch what Jesus says. And this will tell you a lot of why Matthew mentioned the people he mentioned in that first chapter. This is what Jesus says. It says, and as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Notice in that verse, like tax collectors... They don't even put tax collectors with sinners. That's, they're like another level. It's like we have sinners and then we have somebody even worse and those are tax collectors. He mentions them separately. So, so Jesus, is, it starts with a few and now, man, there's a house full. And it says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the, his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Like why is he hanging out with these people? Doesn't he care about his reputation? And then this is what Jesus says. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the religion of Jesus' day, which is a lot like the religion of ours, it basically had this message. Hey, clean yourself up, and when you're cleaned up, you can come to God, and you can start hanging out with God's followers. And that was kind of the message of the day. And, and so what Jesus was doing was, was totally radical. Because in that day and age, you didn't hang out with these people until they cleaned their life up, and once they were cleaned up, they earned the right to hang out with hypocrites that followed God. If, but if they were going to be like that on the outside, you weren't, you weren't welcomed with the religious crowd. And it's a lot like our society today. It's, hey, man, when you get yourself cleaned up, you can come hang out with people that call themselves followers of God. And, and what that does is it actually, it's a hopeless scenario because it leaves people trying to do something they are not capable of doing. It leaves people trying to clean themselves up, trying to check the right boxes when they have no power in themselves to do that, which is why Jesus came. See, the hope of Christmas is the fact that I am incapable of coming to God, so he came to me. The hope of Christmas is I cannot be righteous, which is what is required to have a relationship with God, so Jesus gave me his righteousness. And what's interesting is, see, when Jesus came, he didn't come for the people that pretended to have it all together. See, there was this 
group of people that were religious that Jesus knew they were a total mess on the inside, but they had everybody else fooled. And Jesus didn't come for them. He didn't come for the ones that pretended to have it all together. He came for the people that were the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the murderers, the broken, the proud, the greedy, the people that didn't treat other people well and that were a mess inside. That's who he came for. And if you needed proof of that, just look at his family. Just look at the people in his family tree and it gives you a picture of why did Jesus come. It wasn't for the people that had it all together. He said, I didn't come for the healthy. The healthy, they don't need a doctor. I came for the people that are sick. And I can only imagine that those words never left Matthew. As he sat around the table with Jesus and he saw the scowls from the religious crowd and he heard the whispering. And then Jesus turned and said, guys, I hear what you're saying. But I didn't come for people that have it together. I didn't leave heaven to come to earth to give my life on a cross for religious snobs. I came for people that are broken. And that need hope. And yeah, you guys need hope too. But you're too proud to admit that. So I came for the people that will admit, I need it. And that's what I'm here for. That's why I'm going to hang out with this crowd. Because that's who I came for. See, it, what's, what's so interesting is as you, as you think about this, no matter where you find yourself as it relates to faith, maybe you would put yourself like, you know what, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, and, and I'm, I'm in, in this season, man, I'm really close to God. Or maybe you'd put yourself like, hey, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm investigating faith. Or, man, I, I, I've been kind of in that crowd before of faith and church, but, man, I've done some things in my life that I, I don't even know if I'm qualified anymore. See, we should have hope because Jesus didn't come for the people that had it all together. And so if you're somebody that says, I don't have it all together, then you're Jesus' crowd. That's who he came for. And maybe in the past you've kind of thrown up kind of a lame excuse of why hope isn't for you or why you'll never really have a close walk with God. And you've just kind of come to that conclusion that, you know what, I'm never really going to do the God thing. I'm never really going to walk with God closely. And you've just kind of written that off. For, for whatever reason, maybe it is your past. And maybe you look at your past and you're like, you know what? People don't know what I'm really like. They don't know what I've really done. And I think I'm just disqualified from, from really having a close walk with God. Or, or maybe for you, it's your relationships. There's somebody in your life that you're always kind of blaming for, you know what? Well, they, they just, I can't help my anger. I can't help this. I can't help that. And so, you know what? I'm just always going to be this type of person, and I'm never going to really walk with God and have freedom in my life. And you just kind of have come to that conclusion that that's just the way it's going to be. Or maybe for you, it's your addiction. You're ashamed to come to God because you've come to him so many times and made so many promises and fallen so many times. And so in your mind, you might not say it out loud, but you've just kind of written off ever really having a close walk with God. Maybe it's your doubts. Maybe for you, it's kind of if I avoid God and kind of pretend he's not there, then I'll avoid guilt for living the way I want to live. 
And so you just kind of, your kind of excuse is, yeah, I'm not sure I believe in God. And that kind of gives you the, the, the pathway to kind of live the way you want. Maybe for you, it's your religion. Sometimes we don't think of it this way, but honestly, religious people sometimes are the farthest from God. And here's why. They use their religion to straight arm God from getting too close. They do the, oh, I check that box, check that box, check that box. So uh, kind of my conscience is kind of clear, but I don't really have to get close to God and let him really do work in my heart. As long as I keep checking the right boxes, I'm good. And, and from an outsider's perspective, it's like, man, they got life together. On the inside, they're cold, they're judgmental because they don't have a close relationship with God either. And for them, it's, it's actually the religion that is actually crowding God out from their intimacy with God. And so if, if you're here and you would say, man, that's me, in some scenario, that's me, I, I, I kind of have an excuse. I, 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 you know, I've, I know I could be closer to God and I know there's some, some real benefit to that, but man, there's an excuse or two that I've just always used. And I'm just never going never gonna to be that person that has a close walk with God. I hope I have a few of those people in my life, but it's never going to be me. You know what I think Jesus would say to us if he was here with us? He'd say, hey, have I told you about my great-grandmother Tamar? Did, did, you, did you hear about my, my great-granddad David, some of the craziness in his life? Or you must not have heard when I was hanging out with the tax collectors and the religious crowd kind of started talking smack about us. Remember what I said to them? I, I reminded them that, hey, we're not here for people that have it all together. I actually came for the people with a past. I came for the people that, that uh, are, are doubting. I came for the people that use religion to kind of straight arm me. I came for people that need God. That's who I came for. And so if that's you, then, hey, I'm here for you. I think that's what Jesus would say. And so as we, we, we kind of close, I want you to think about something. I want, want you to ask yourself a question. I hope this isn't an offensive question, but I want you to ask yourself this question. What do you find yourself blaming for where you are in your relationship with God? What, what do you find yourself blaming? If you're not close to God right now, for whatever reason, you probably have something you can point to. And you might be, hey, it's, I admit I have a, an issue here, or I have an issue here, and, and you admit, like, hey, I'm owning why I'm not close to God. It's on me. Or it, for you, it might be there's somebody else or some other scenario, or I got burnt by the church 15 years ago, so I'm never going to go back. I'm never going to be close to God. But what do you find yourself blaming? What would it look like if you and I stopped blaming and instead decided, you know what? I want to begin growing in my relationship with Jesus. What if we set aside the things we were blaming, even if they're legit things, and said, you know what? I'm done blaming my past. I'm done blaming relationship. I'm just done coming up with excuses. And I'm going to take my relationship with God seriously. I'm going to get closer to Jesus. See, for Matthew... It was leaving his tax collector booth and having dinner with Jesus that started this. Like for him, if you were to say, hey, Matt, Matt what would it look like for you to, to, to move away from where you're at and quit making excuses and actually take some steps in your relationship with Jesus? Matthew would say to you, hey, for me, the story started with me leaving my tax collector booth and having dinner with Jesus. 
That's what it started with. That's how it all started. And I think from Matthew, there's a lot we can learn. We, we can learn a lot from Matthew and how he began his close walk with Jesus. And so I would ask you this question as we begin to close. Is there something I need to stop doing so I can enjoy time with Jesus? Matthew, he's like, I'm out, I'm out, I'm leaving the tax collector booth. That's getting in the way of my relationship. I'm leaving that. And I'm going to go have dinner with Jesus. For you, it might legitimately be something that you have to leave to open up time in your schedule to spend time with Jesus. But for most of us, that's not what I'm talking about. For some of us, it's, it's time to leave the bitterness. It's time to leave the unforgiveness. It's time to leave the greed, the lust. It's time to leave whatever that is. Where you would say, hey, for me to have a closer walk with Jesus, I need to do what Matthew did and I need to leave something. And go have dinner with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. What is it for you? What is it that you would say, hey, for me it's maybe my dishonesty. It's my, how I treat people. It's my, the way I gossip. It's my pride. Whatever it is. If we decide not to leave those things, here's what we're doing. We're literally crowding out intimacy with Jesus. And we, aren't we good at that? Like, we are good at adding things to the tool belt. Like, I got all my stuff. Oh, yeah, we'll throw Jesus on there, too. I mean, he's, got, he's like one of 50 things, so he'll get a little bit of time. But, you know, he's going to be a part of the whole thing. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, what if you took a lot of those things off the tool belt and made a little bit more room for me? And, and we could have a, an intimate relationship. See, it won't change till something goes. We all know that because we're, we're good at adding, but until something goes, it's not going to be any different. And Matthew and I, and maybe one day I'll be able to ask him this question. He had heard Jesus talk probably several times. Why was it on that day when Jesus came to him and said, hey, Matt, why don't you follow me? That he decided, okay, I'm I'm in. I'm stepping away. I'm stepping away from, for him, what he made money doing. He, I mean, like he made a big decision. I'm stepping away from what maybe makes me comfortable and financially settled to follow you. And so for you, what is that this season that you know, man, if, if this doesn't leave, the next year at this time, you'll be no more closer to Jesus than you are today. Let me, let me give you a, kind of a, just a, something to close with that if you maybe this week are saying you know what Chris I, I would admit in my heart there's some things that are crowding out intimacy with Jesus and, and maybe there's some things that nobody knows about or maybe there's some things that everybody knows about but, but would you be willing to pray this prayer with me this week would you be willing to say this to Jesus it'll be up on the screen Jesus may I be sensitive and intolerant to anything in my life that hinders my relationship with you. My hope is in you. Would you be willing this, this week to pray this? Jesus, make me sensitive. I want to be sensitive and I want to be intolerant to anything that's hindering my relationship with you. Why? Because my hope is in you. That's it. David's hope, Jesus. Matthew's hope, Jesus. 
anybody's hope that you look down through the scriptures, you look at all the stories, hope is Jesus. And, and, and if we're, we're un, in, unwilling, and, and for some of us, we just maybe need to just come clean and admit, I'm unwilling to get rid of some things to have intimacy with Jesus. And just come clean. Instead of pretending, like, ah, I'm going to have Jesus and I'll, I'll keep my other little things going too. Because it's just not going to happen. But this could be the year. This could be the day where we say, you know what, Jesus I'm going to lay aside some things and I need your power because I can't do it on my own because if I try to do it on my own, I'll pick them up tomorrow. But I need you, Jesus, to help me lay these down on a daily basis because my hope is in you. You are better. And that, if, if that's what we got this Christmas season, it, whether you're somebody that's close to God or maybe you're investigating faith, if we left this Christmas season with one phrase, Jesus is better, it would radically change our 2020. Let's, let's bow our heads as we kind of close. And I just between you and God, I just want to ask you a few questions. The first question, and we've already shared this, and so you've probably already thought of it, and, but, but what do you find yourself blaming for where you are in your relationship with God? I mean, we all do. We all have something. And, and maybe it's something different today than it was last week, but man, we all have something that, that when push comes to shove, we have a reason for why we're not closer to God. What is it for you? probably pops in your head right away. What would it look like for you to stop blaming that thing and instead begin growing in your relationship with Jesus? What would that look like? For Matthew, it was leaving the tax collector booth and having dinner with Jesus. What would it look like for you to maybe lay aside something so that you could make more time for Jesus? Maybe lay aside bitterness. Maybe lay aside pride. Maybe lay aside how I treat people. Maybe lay aside dishonesty, gossip, lust. So that we literally don't crowd out Jesus. Just in the quietness of your heart, would you be willing to, to pray the prayer that I ask you to pray? And, and not for me, but for you. Would you be willing this week to pray Jesus? May I be sensitive and intolerant to anything in my life that hinders my relationship with you. My hope is in you. I believe if we pray that with a humble spirit that really desires Jesus to change us, I am 100% confident that he will do that. God, I pray for each of us. Uh, Lord, whether we're somebody that uh, has been following you for a long time or maybe we're uh, just going through a tough season. Maybe we're a little bit uh, skeptical of the whole Jesus thing. Lord, I pray for each of us that we would lean into you, that we would even test you. If we're skeptical, that we would lean in and say, okay, man, for the next season, I'm, I'm going to lean in. I'm going to ask Jesus to make me sensitive and intolerant to things that would hinder my relationship with him. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would show us those things and that we would obey you, that we would have the courage to do what you tell us to do.
In Jesus' name, amen.